Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, this uh, day of beauty and grandeur that you have created for us to see how great you are in the physical things you've created. And you've given us your word to enlighten us on our spiritual nature, our human nature, and how we relate to you. So, Father, as we proceed into this last part of uh, chapter 4 of Romans, that you would uh, enlighten us, give us wisdom to understand and comprehend what you are saying to us through the Apostle Paul, who so eloquently uh, worked his way through justification by faith alone. You're a good and a gracious God, and we thank you this day for your patience with us. In Christ's name, amen. We're out of handout, so if any of you can share as a couple, we would appreciate your contribution. So we begin with Romans 4.13, and in the for in, interest of time, I'm not going to read the, the text uh, 13 through 25. Uh, we'll just take it as we come to it. So 4.13 uh, says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, as indicated on the slide, the proper heir of God the Father is God the Son, who alone is worthy to inherit the kingdom of the Father as promised. However, the gift of faith is through that righteousness of faith. So those who are adopted in the family of God become heirs also. So in the coming weeks, uh, and months in our study on Romans, we'll look in more detail about what it means to be an heir of God. But, but here, we're just introduced to the concept. So our opening text is contrasting God's covenant promise with Abraham and his offspring to the law given to Moses. Now, it's, it's needful to point out Paul's second point in Romans 4.13, and, and that is, why Abraham was not justified by the right of circumcision, nor justified by the keeping of the law. Now, as an observation, uh, the Apostle Paul is so caught up in the doctrine of justification by faith alone that he just can't seem to let go of it. For he labors it all through Romans 3 and 4, as you have experienced uh, having been here for the past several uh, Sunday schools. Uh, and the, the previous lectures in this series have unpacked that very well, and we will continue that today to some extent. Sadly, in light of the church history, perhaps the apostle didn't labor it long enough, uh, because every generation there are those who stand up and oppose the essential truths of the gospel. So moving on into... Uh, Sub point one, it's obvious from the chronology 
uh, that Scripture gives us that Abraham wasn't, uh, he was 75 when he was uh, given the promise. Uh, and, and, and circumcision at the age of 99. And the law didn't come along until 430 years later. So obviously the patriarch uh, had no way of uh, knowing the specifics of the law. All that happened uh, far beyond his life. So the, the Abrahamic covenant comes to us in a series of uh, tidbits from Genesis 12 through 17. And all of it clearly points to Christ as the fulfillment of the law. That's Romans 10, 4 tells us that. Now we'll pick up the substance of the Abrahamic covenant shortly, but for the moment, I'd like to kind of work backward from the law given to Moses as we find it in the New Testament. Uh, let's see which. Not there yet. Okay, now working backward. Uh, nine of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the Summary of God's Law, and the Standard of Behavior from Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, are repeated in the New Testament numerous times in different ways. The only commandment not repeated in the New Testament is the fourth one, the one about Sabbath-keeping, which is Saturday. Now, there's a topic here, but it's not one I want to address beyond a couple of uh, quick points. Uh, briefly, in the earliest days of the first century church, worship consists of Sabbath keeping, which was the seventh day, Saturday, and resurrection celebration, which was the first day. There's two different days. Now, in time, the, the former decreased and the latter persisted. Uh, Justo Gonzalez uh, wrote a book, The Story of Christianity, Volume 1. It's the early church uh, to the dawn of the Reformation. And Gonzalez says that the notion of Sunday, the notion that Sunday has taken the place of the Sabbath is noticeably absent from early Christian literature. In the first century, uh, a single day was sunset to sunset. So while we might assume that the churches met on the Lord's Day, they would be meeting on Sunday morning, Acts 20 verse 7 indicates that Christ's disciples met at night on the first day of the week. Remember the narrative uh, which includes the young man, uh, Eutychus, falling asleep late at night while sitting in a third-story window. He fell down dead. Well, under the Jewish calendar, uh, churches gathered on Saturday night, not Sunday, the Lord's Day. We see that in Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and others. There is a clear mandate in the New Testament. It's Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. He said, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as you see the day dawning. In other words, the New Testament simple language says that Christians are supposed to be in corporate worship on the Lord's Day. That means we're supposed to go to church. Uh, here's a kind of an extraneous tidbit. Through most of Christian history, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, uh, the summary of God's law and standard of behavior, which is central to Christian life, piety, and worship, uh, impossible to live up to these ten. And, and there are 613 in total uh, commandments and statutes. And there's some debate on who originally came up with this 613 as a, as a specific number of commandments in the entirety of the law. But the most common accepted breakdown was done by Maimonides, who was a Shepardic Jew, a Spanish Jew philosopher. And he was the most prolific and influential Torah scholar in the Middle Ages. In the 12th century, he further divided the 613 commandments into 248 positive do this and 365 negatives do not do this commandments. The whole law indeed is unbearably burdensome. So is the Abrahamic covenant still in operation? Well, the promise has been realized and God has kept his promise that he gave to Abraham. And Paul tells us as much in Galatians 3, verse 13 and 14. The New Testament does not teach that there is one covenant for the physical seed of Abraham and another covenant uh, for the spiritual seed of Abraham, as though there were two tracks to salvation provided in the Bible. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the importance of Paul emphasizing the way in which Christ fulfills the covenant by becoming a curse so that all may experience the blessing of the Abrahamic promise. So the question is, is the covenant in effect now? It is. What was the, what was the basis of trust distinction between uh, Abraham and us today? The, the only trust distinction in the giving of the Redeemer is that Abraham trusted in the promise, and our trust is in the fulfillment of the promise. So what was included in the promise uh, referenced in Romans 4.13? I've got a, a, a map up here. It's an, it is a a fairly current map of the Middle East. And the enclosed area with the red around it uh, represents the land promise that was in the covenant with Abraham. So this geological outline 
on the map is where uh, Abraham would live, but he wouldn't possess, nor would his offsprings until some five centuries later when Joshua led the Israelites into the conquest of Canaan. Now, the, uh, the approximate approximation of this land grant, if you'll look in the lower left-hand corner of the red, uh, that begins on the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt near the Suez Canal and on the Mediterranean Sea. And it goes up the coastline all the way to the Turkish border, encompassing current-day Israel, Lebanon, and most of Syria. Then it moves diagonally right and downward between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers, encompassing most of current-day Iraq to a point just north of the Kuwaiti border near the Persian Gulf. Now going left uh, to our starting point is almost a straight line across Saudi Arabia and Jordan onto the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt uh, to the Mediterranean Sea near the Suez Canal. It's that encompassing a chunk of Saudi Arabia and Egypt and most of Jordan. Mount Sinai is located uh, its location where God gave the law to Moses is located on the Sinai Peninsula. The land of Moriah, or Mount Moriah, where Isaac was to be sacrificed, is tentatively located west of Jerusalem. The exact location is not really known. And Ur of the Chaldees is all the way over to the right. This is the birthplace of Abram. It's along the Euphrates River near the lower right boundary of land grant near the Persian Gulf. The second part of the promise involved people. A people would be so numerous that they could not be numbered, like the dust of the earth or the stars in the sky. Eventually, Abram. Abram Abraham would become the father of, of many nations. Third, the promise included a blessing of the entire world through Abraham's descendants, Genesis 12, 3. Through Abraham, there is no greater blessing to the world than the birth of a Savior. According to Galatians 3, 29, all who become one with Christ are adopted into Abraham's family and are made heirs to the promise of eternal life. So Hebrews 9.15 tells us. Fourth, the promise would be fulfilled in the giving of Redeemer who would be a descendant of Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed by the provision of salvation. The promise to Abraham, in essence, a preaching to him of the gospel, Abraham believed the gospel, and even when Isaac, his sole divinely promised heir, was about to be offered as a sacrifice, Abraham trusted that somehow God would provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Now, through the writer of Hebrews, the Lord gives a beautiful revelation to the extent of Abraham's understanding of faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. 
of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We're at uh, 4 on the handout. Romans 4.14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If the gift of God could be obtained apart from faith through our works, great efforts, and our aspirations to earn merit, we would, in effect, empty the significance of faith, which is the solitary instrument, instrumental cause of justification. Now, I've got Luther up here. And the sale of indulgences by the church is likely the final straw that ignited Luther. But in the years leading up to October 31, 1517, uh, these years are essential to understand Martin Luther's motiv motivation and the purpose for the Reformation. In 1513, Luther, as a brand new professor at the University of Wittenberg, Luther lectured on the Psalms, then he lectured on Paul's epistles to the Romans and Galatians from, for two years. So while Luther studied and taught the scriptures, he wrestled mightily with, with the established dogma of the Roman Catholic Church concerning grace and faith in what has sometimes been called his Damascus Road or Tower Experience. Uh, Luther had his Reformation breakthrough and discovery. Now, later in life, in 1545, this is, I think, a year before he died, he described this experience that he had. He says, I had already for years read and taught the Holy Scriptures both privately and publicly. I knew most of the Scriptures by heart, and furthermore, had eaten of the first fruits of knowledge of and faith in Christ, namely that we are justified not by works, but by faith in Christ. That's a connection I hadn't heard before. <clears throat> okay, moving on to uh, 5, Romans 4.15a, the first part of that verse. For the law brings wrath. So why is that? Why does Paul come to that conclusion? Well, what the law affects is not salvation, justification, or forgiveness. It's the wrath of God, putting our confidence in the law with our hopes and meritorious works. And this will only result in the wrath of God coming down upon us. Now, chapter 4, verse 15b, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now, no transgression here is not meant to be understood that those not under the law have never sinned. Everyone has sinned. 
Ecclesiastes 7.20, Romans 3.23. And we have done so without any valid excuse, according to Paul in Romans 1.18-20. Paul simply means here that those who were not under the law haven't broken the law specifically. I'm going to take a little side trip here. Abraham was declared righteous by God on the basis of faith, as was the righteous line of Seth, including Enoch and Noah, from the pre-Diluvian period. As well, everyone who was or will be declared right with God, all the way to the moment of Christ's return. So, did people sin between Adam and Moses? When people between Adam and Moses sinned, they, they still died and they were punished. Uh, I've got several examples there. God warning Cain not to sin. And Cain was punished. Uh, the sin of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah was extremely grave. And they were punished. They were incinerated. Adam's, uh, Abraham sinned multiple times, and he was rebuked. So sin is recorded four more times in Genesis. In chapter 31, verse 36, 39, chapter 39, verse 9, chapter 42, verse 22, and chapter 50, verse 17. So the message of the book of Romans and the book of Genesis clearly states that people did sin and they died. Yes? We're coming to that. It's a good question, though, and I'll be pleased to answer that here in a moment. Okay, the death that Genesis 2, verse 17 talks about threatens that uh, is human spiritual death, namely alienation from God. This becomes clear once we see what happened to the human pair when they disobeyed in Genesis 3. So the only sense in which physical death might be seen as a consequence of sin is indirect. It's a, con it's a consequence of Adam and Eve's expulsion or exile from the garden. And it, it cut off any hope of immortality symbolized by the tree of life. So what has happened is that they've missed out on the chance of immortality. Now, we'll see the tree of life again, I mean, not in this session, but in Revelation 22, verse 2. The tree of life uh, and the, uh, the river of life will be evident in the new heavens and the new earth. So, we should note some of the ways the Bible understands trees in general. 
Trees are often used in Scripture as a symbol of life, uh, particularly life that is considered full. The fullness of righteous people, for example, is likened to a tree filled with life, uh, Proverbs 11, verse 30. And the fullness of life and honor is also associated with righteousness, Proverbs 21, verse 21. The Old Testament also uses trees as metaphors for the life that God gives. Jeremiah 17, verse 7 and 8, uh, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit, eternally alive, in other words. So given these realities, it's easy to see why the Lord chose to supply life to his people by the means of the tree of life, which while they lived in the Garden of Eden, uh, in Genesis 2-9, apparently immortality was a gift to anyone who regularly ate the fruit of this tree, Genesis 3-22. And, and one commentator notes that the tree of life is almost an early means of sacramental communication between God and his people. The tree was a physical means of conducting a spiritual transaction, the very essence of a sacrament. As long as Adam and Eve ate of the tree, they had life, and they had access to the tree because before sin, they were in the right relationship with God. While they trusted his wisdom and obeyed his commands not to eat of the forbidden fruit, Our first parents could eat freely of the tree of life uh, that gives them life. So their trust in God's promises signified by their eating of the proper tree and not of the forbidden tree. And it maintained their place in Eden and consequently their life of blessedness. So why did they sin? Uh, because Adam sinned, and consequently all of his descendants became sinners, and sinners sin. We all know that. And we incur the punishment of death. Therefore, Romans 5.14 says that death reigned from Adam to Moses, even though they didn't violate an explicit command such as the one given to Adam, do not eat. So we find the, the setting of God's judgment in the flood in Genesis 6, verse 5 and 8. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every indication and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So moving on to uh, 
the next one, if God knew that evil would not eradicate the flood, why did he send the flood in the first place? We'll look at three, three ways to answer that, and there, there are more. I'm just picking three. So one way is that um, is to interpret mankind's sin in the time of Noah as something unique and significantly more severe than we see in the world today. Uh, we just read that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, Genesis 6, 5. And this is a powerful indictment on the condition of the human heart. Not only does Scripture say that the thoughts of man were purely evil, they were exclusively evil, evil, and that his heart was always like this. However much we may complain about the condition of our world today, we probably shouldn't compare it our current situation with that of Noah simply because the evil in Noah's day appears to have reached an unimaginable level. There was something unusually evil about the heart of man in Noah's day and the Lord used the appropriate course of action. Now this approach is surely somewhat speculative but at least it's consistent with what we read elsewhere in scripture about who God is. Another possibility, <coughs> um, although, the, although Bible scholars are divided over exactly who were the sons of God and the Nephilim were, the Bible is clear that the descendants were characterized by some particularly extreme form of evil. Moreover, in Genesis 6-3, it seems that the Lord's response to the actions of the Son of God is the first actual reference to the flood when the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. So God effectively begins the countdown for the onset of the judgment, and this suggests that the flood was God's direct response to the actions of the sons of God and the Nephilim. Now, the Nephilim were mysterious beings or people who were described as being large and strong. And, and the Hebrew word Nephilim is sometimes translated as giants, sometimes meaning the fallen ones. The origins of the Nephilim are disputed, and some view them as offsprings of fallen angels and humans. I've heard that somewhere in my past. Others view them as offsprings of Seth and Cain. Now, the main reference to them is in Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4. The passage is a bit ambiguous and the identity of the Nephilim are disputed by theologians. So if you've ever had that thought or ever heard it, uh, that's probably not it. Another, or the third one that I'll talk about is uh, from 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Uh, this tells us that the narratives in the Old Testament are useful as more than historical records. Not only this event that happened, but others as well. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as a warning to us on whom the end of the ages has come. 
Now, the story of the flood is an example that we should take seriously. Jesus draws a parallel between the story of the flood and our society today in Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39. Paraphrasing it, it means that, that life will be happening. Marriage, partying, enjoying the comforts and blessings of life and ignoring the eventuality that God would judge the world. So the floods came and took them away, took them unawares. So the historic flood in Noah's day stands in a, as a symbol of God's coming judgment. Just as Noah's contemporaries failed to understand their impending doom, as many of our own contemporaries will be swept away in God's judgment without ever comprehending their need for a savior. The flood functions as a warning to those who would presume upon God's mercy and continuing their disobedience. The flood calls everyone to repentance. Am I going the wrong way? So the question, the question is, if God knew the flood would not eradicate evil, why did he do it? So God sent the flood to judge the world at the time of heinous, continual worldwide sin, and God knew the flood wouldn't eradicate the sin problem, and mankind would remain sinful after the flood. But God wasn't done dealing with sin. He sent his son Jesus into the world to disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Colossians 2.15 tells us that because of Christ, the new heavens and earth are promised. And Revelation 21, verse 1, and no longer will there be any curse. Revelation 22, verse 3. Okay, now I'm back on track, I think. Okay, in, uh, this would be seven on your handout. In Abraham's day, why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? The Bible records in chapter, Romans chapter five, verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. And in our text today, uh, chapter 4, verse 15b, where there is no law, there is no transgression.
from the beginning of time, there was a law written. This is for you, Jeff. There was a law written in the hearts of man. Romans 2, verse 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. For all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearer of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law. By nature do what the law requires. They are the law unto themselves, even though they do not, know, do not have the law. They show that their works of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thought accuses or even excuses them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Without you going way off track. So is I'm this... already way off track. <laughs> Sorry. Go ahead. So if I think of uh, in one chapter one, eighteen or nineteen, where it talks referring to general revelation versus what we talk, what we know of as special revelation, is this kind of like general revelation that they know what sin is, but it's kind of not spelled out like what comes in with the Mosaic covenant? Is that well, Am I well, headed the right direction, or was that wrong? When God created man, he created them in his own image, and he put in them uh, his love and a thirst for the truth. And that is that was put into his conscience. And that is still there in the conscience of every human that has ever lived. And uh, R.C. Sproul often, or I've heard him say, you know, because of a question kind of like that, uh, what about the innocent individual in the depths of Africa who has never heard that there is a God? And, but it is written on the conscience of man that there is a God. And that person that has never heard anything about it is responsible to comply with what his conscience is telling him. So our conscience, for those people who've never heard anything, they're responsible for what they know, what God has already written on their, on their heart and their conscience. And that's what they'll be judged by. Did they acknowledge it and show some uh, spiritual connection with what they already knew? Or did they just ignore it and continue in their evil ways. Uh, we'll, we'll hit that a little bit more uh, soon. Yes? Hold on just a sec for the recording so everybody can hear. Who is it? <laughs> 
isn't that really why Adam and Eve knew immediately they were naked and were ashamed because of what God had already written on their heart yep, before I'm they a, actually sinned? I'm about to say that very thing. <laughs> well, let's go back to the first rebellion. When Adam and was created in God's image, meaning that he had God's law of love and justice written on his heart, recalled that Adam and Eve covered their nakedness and hid themselves from God. Their conscience was pricked. The death penalty for sin had already been pronounced on Adam. Therefore, from the time of Adam's rebellion, to the, the entire population is subject to Adamic death due to sin. Adam was the federal head of all mankind, Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men for all have sinned, etc. I didn't mean to do that. Does that say 15 at the bottom? It's 16. 15, okay. This may be a little difficult to understand on the surface, but we have to remember that God's ways are higher than ours, and Scripture is replete with this thought. Uh, for the sake of time, we'll just look at one instance. Romans 11, verse 33 and 34. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who knows the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? There are at least 11 other scriptures that say something very similar. Okay, before the law, did people go to heaven or hell? Yep, so we've created another question. Before the law, were people held accountable? Yes, indeed. And there are four examples I want to give you. I'll try to do this quickly. Uh, Romans 2, verse 14 through 16, uh, tells us that uh, Adam was created in God's image, meaning that he had... Is that 16 at the bottom? No, but 17. Okay, there we go. Uh, so God's law of love and justice was written on Adam's heart and everybody that's been born since. And our conscience convicts or defends our behavior. So God uses uh, the occasions when our conscience is violated to condemn the unbeliever in the last judgment. They ignored their conscience that urged them not to sin, Romans 1, 19 through 21. Since the fall uh, of our first parents, they have been no innocent humans. Scripture clearly teaches that some people from Adam to Moses went to heaven and others were sent to eternal condemnation, as we'll see in examples uh, 3 and 4 that follow uh, 
on the slide here, we have uh, Enoch walked with God. Therefore, God took him. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 5 and 6 echoes the same truth. Now, this event happened between the lifetimes of Adam and Moses. And then proceeding on, um, the next obvious, what about Enoch? God took him. Uh, I'm sorry, Elijah, who lived after the law. Uh, he went up in a whirlwind. And we also see this phrase, being taken up or went up in the New Testament. And we see it as caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 and 7 to 17. When we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. So the something like the event of Enoch and Elijah will happen again when Christ comes back. Uh, the thought occurred to me uh, as I was putting this together. Uh, if anybody wants to think through that, you can see me after class, I guess. So God told Noah that he would destroy the world, the people of the world, with a flood. Second uh, Peter 2, verse 4 through 6, reveals that the ancient world was judged. And the strong implication is that they went to hell. Uh, the fourth one, uh, we're taught that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in Jude 7 and Second Peter verse 6 because they indulge in gross sin as a result they suffered the punishment of eternal fire and that would be the lake of fire or hell so the conclusion is that yes is the answer people went to hell and some went to heaven so God will use their sense of right and wrong that exist in their conscience in the last judgment to sentence them to the lake of fire or to heaven. This reveals that those who have not known the Bible or Jesus Christ can be sentenced to an eternal condemnation if they refuse to seek God and to respond correctly to his con through his conscience. Now, we know far better than that today. Uh, these uh, were people who were living before the law all the way back to to Adam. So what does the Westminster Confession of Faith tell us about Romans 4, 16a? That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on the grace to be guaranteed to all his offspring. We go look at Westminster Shorter Catechism 85, uh, and it tells us to escape the wrath of God due to our sin. God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life with a diligent use of the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. The promise in our text today has no effect to anyone apart from faith. Then we can bounce back up to uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism 86. Uh, and that tells us that what is faith in Jesus Christ? It's a saving grace whereby we rest and receive upon him the alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. So then with repentance 
is clarified for us in the Shorter Catechism 87. Repentance is also a saving grace whereby the sinner out of a true sense of his sin and a comp apprehension of the mercy of Christ doth with grief and hatred for his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. So how is the covenant of grace administered under the Old Testament? We go to the larger catechism for that, uh, 34. It was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Passover, and other types of ordinances which did foresignify Christ then to come and were for all that time sufficient to build up the elect in faith to be promised to the promised Messiah by whom they then had full remission of the sin and eternal salvation. The covenant of grace uh, in the New Testament is, we go to the larger catechism for that, uh, 35. Uh, when Christ was ex uh, substance was exhibited, the same covenant of grace, and is, and is still to be administered uh, by the preaching of the word, the ministration of the sacraments of baptism, the Lord's Supper, and which grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy. So if we go back to Martin Luther, uh, this is an explanation of how the Roman Catholic Church viewed grace in medieval times. And at the bottom there, Underlined, It says, in other words, medieval Catholicism held that Christ and the grace of God make salvation a possibility for the believer. At the final judgment, God will decide if the Christian has used and done justice to God's gift of grace. Obviously, this is an erroneous understanding of grace. Uh, in this book, Grace Alone, Carl Truman, it's a, a tour de force uh, of the doctrine of grace and God's relationship with human beings. Uh, I'm going to blow through a good bit of this because of time. Uh, grace and character. Uh, is, is a response, an application of God's character and attributes to human rebellion. Grace is that aspect of divine action by which God blesses his rebellious creatures, whether through preservation, which is common grace, or salvation, which is special grace. In Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord proclaims himself to be the compassionate and gracious God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And this attribute then is, uh, exists in relation to something other than God. It exists to us and our sin. So Truman stresses the grace as something God does in response to something rather than an attribute of his nature. God responds to our sin with his compassion. Grace and covenant... Um, The covenant provides the historical revelation, thread, and structure of God's gracious dealing. 
and becomes the key to the administration of God's grace. And one example of this, King Haziel, king of Syria, who opposed Israel, yet despite their sin, the Lord was gracious to them, and he had compassion and showed concern for them uh, of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in 2 Kings 13, verse 23. This narrative is a covenantal faithfulness was vital to Israel's identity, and, and their people formed by grace and sustained by grace on page 27, which is why Moses tells us in Exodus 13 to recite and retell the story of God's gracious rescue from his people from Egypt. Uh, grace and liturgy. Um, the people declared that God is one followed by the commandment to love them and warn not to forget the grace, great and gracious acts of deliverance that the Lord had performed for his people. Uh, the confession was a cornerstone of Israel's liturgical life. Uh, then there was the great ironic benediction of number, number 6, verse 24 through 26. The Lord bless you, keep you, etc., etc., which points people to the grace of God by which we approach him then there's grace and sacrifice. Truman says that we wrongly believe that apologizing will be sufficient to cover the evil of our sin, for grace is far more than a sentimental notion. Now, unlike cheap sentimentalism, the Old Testament makes it clear that God's grace is more than a whimsical response to our collective oopsies. Further, sacrifices were not an attempt by human beings to find something that would placate or cajole an angry God. Instead, God took the initiative, revealing how sinful humans could relate to him, and he established the sacrificial system as atonement for, his re for our rebellion. Uh, then lastly, grace and prayer. Uh, we we really don't need to forget this, for to do so would be detached prayer from its position of God's overall gracious action. Grace is a staple in the Old Testament prayer. And grace is, is not empty sentiment. If it's not empty sentiment, then neither is prayer a sentimental action. Now, how often do we see and hear examples of human suffering uh, with the response that people are praying for their victims? While the typical response is a good one, uh, it's hard not to wonder whether the phrase such as, our thoughts and prayers are with you, is really just another way of saying we feel bad for the victims and we want to express our solidarity with them and their loved ones. This is not biblical prayer. The air conditioning is off today, by the way, I understand. Okay, back to Romans 4. I'm going to stop in 10 minutes. Romans 4, verse 16b and 17. Not only the adherents of the law, but also the ones who shared the faith of Abraham who is the father of all, as is written, I have made you the father of many nations. 
Will those who place their trust in the same promise that Abraham embraced by which he was counted righteous before God are the ones that are saved? Romans 4.17b and 18. Uh, in the presence of God in whom we believe, who gives life to death and calls into existence the things that do not exist in hope of believing against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. Well, it's a lengthy clause and it's a, a literal gold mine. And notice the tension here. When it comes to staking our life on God, Paul writes in our text today, uh, verse 17b and 18, that Abraham believed God because God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist and hopes he believed against hope or against all hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. This gives credence to the idea that true faith, the faith that believes against the evidence and all reason, so it wasn't a leap of faith for Abraham, nor did he have, or did he have reason for it apart from all his earthly indications. Moving on to chapter 4, verse 19 through 21. Um, he did not weaken in faith, but he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of de uh, Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew stronger in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. As Stephen pointed out to me earlier, Sarah's, Sarah's womb, uh, Scripture says that uh, it was barren, barrenness, but it was dead. It wasn't able to produce. So God um, not only gives us better than we deserve, grace gives us what we cannot produce, life from the dead, the sight of glory, the hearing of divine truth, the taste of spiritual sweetness. It all comes into being by the sweet and sovereign grace of God. Abraham's situation looked hopeless, and it really was, until he looked at the one who made the promise. If the promise is to be guaranteed, God must do the impossible. He must do what humans cannot do, give life to the dead and call into being that which does not exist. The supernatural birth of Isaac is a picture of how God creates children of promise, you and me. So Paul says in Galatians 4.28, you brothers like Isaac are children of the promise, not like Ishmael born of what humans can do. Isaac was born of the Spirit, and you're born by a miracle of the Spirit. Isaac was brought from deadness. You're brought forth from deadness. Isaac's face was called into being out of nothing. This is the meaning of grace, and that's why grace guarantees the promise. God does what human resources cannot do. There's one parallel outside of Romans that has a tremendous comp 
tremendously compelling in this understanding of grace, and it's Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. It tells us precisely this. It is the work of God to raise spiritually dead people to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. It exactly says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is a great uh, account of, of grace of God, what he does for us. So why is faith, why is his faith counted to him as righteousness? But, but the words that was counted to him were not written for our sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Um, Here's a bit of homework for you, if you care to do it. One theologian said that two of the most beautiful words in the Bible are for us. I've gave you, given uh, numerous scripture references there where you will see for us. It's uh, encouraging to, to look at those. So I haven't made mention of imputation uh, until just this moment. Uh, Marshall talked about that at length last week, so I'm not I'm not going to pursue that um, uh, at this point, um, and I'm going to stop there. Uh, if you have any questions, or in seven minutes, if you have children in Sunday school, you need to go relieve the teacher and pick them up. Uh, and just fellowship, hang out, uh, discuss uh, matters of consequence. So thank you for your attention. Any particular question bearing on your mind? If I can't answer it, I'm sure there's somebody here who can Okay, then, let me close with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, for opportunity to gather and encourage one another in the word, that we may be strengthened in our faith. And we thank you for the grace and the mercy that you give to us that are renewed every morning. For our need is great, and your uh, timing is excellent to provide these uh, unlimited mercies to us each day. Bless us now as we continue in our our worship time, that we would be edified and, and uh, greatly encouraged by what we hear. In Christ's name, amen.